Hello, and welcome to an episode of Chingonas Only Club. I'm your host, Meli Ramirez, and I wanted to say thank you for joining us today. This is going to be a sensitive topic, and I'd like to just offer up a trigger warning. We will be discussing femicide. So if you are prone to be triggered by sexual violence, domestic violence, then you might want to skip this episode. Without further ado, get ready, get comfortable, and let's dive in. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. I wanted to talk to you all about a very serious topic, and I've touched on it in the past when I did an episode on violence against women, but I wanted to go in a little deeper and why this topic is so important to me, why it should be important to all of us, and really just to raise awareness about this issue because I feel like it gets glossed over a lot in the media and I want to make sure that at least I do my part and if I can reach one person then I've always told you all that if I can just reach one person and bring awareness to an issue with this one individual then I feel like I've done enough. Today's discussion is going to be on femicide particularly femicide against Black, Indigenous women of color, because there is just so much information out there that people are unaware of, because it simply just doesn't get the coverage that it deserves, um, or the resources that it deserves to help solve cases of all of these women who have been murdered. So to kick it off, first and foremost, I want to just for those of you who've never heard the term femicide, explain it to you. So I'm just going to read this off of an article on the website visionofhumanity.org. So femicide is defined as the criminal deprivation of the life of a female victim for reasons based on gender. The murder of a woman or girl is considered gender-based and included in femicide statistics when one of the seven criteria is met. It can include evidence of sexual violence prior to the victim's death, a sentimental, affective, or trusting relationship with the perpetrator, and the victim's body being displayed in public. And I would say that femicide is prevalent all over the world. For some reason, just like marginalized communities don't get attention to a lot of the social issues they experienced, femicide kind of falls into that category. But this is a huge issue, and for some reason, it just does not get the coverage that it deserves. And so often, people go on thinking that it's something that is more an exception that happens less often than it actually does. And I want to just share a a personal experience with you all so that you can understand why it's so important to me and how I connect with this. Um, uh, If you listen to previous episodes, you know that I lived in Mexico between the ages of 19 to 21 for two years when I was deported in 2006. And part of my stay in Mexico included me living in Tijuana, Mexico, or Tijuana, Baja California, which is across the border from the California-Mexican border. When I was living there, 
I would say the drug cartels were at an all-time peak, and it got so bad that the government declared martial law, and the military came in and they took over the city because the police was so corrupt that the ballistics for a lot of murders started coming back and returning to police weapons. So police were the ones killing people, essentially. And martial law was implemented during that time because our own law enforcement just couldn't be trusted to do their job. So as you can imagine, it was a very heightened awareness at that time for everyone who lived there, including myself, particularly because I was an outsider to that place in general. Yes, I'm Mexican. Yes, I spoke Spanish, but I was not from there. I Even if I was born in Mexico, that wasn't where I was born. I was new to the city. I didn't have any family. I didn't know any friends. And I've talked to my husband, I think, probably the most about it. I don't think I've shared any of these stories with other people, but I wanted to share them with you all so you can kind of get a picture of what I would go through. At that time, I was only um, 20 years old when I first got to Tijuana, and I was 20, 21 years old. I was by myself. I was living alone. I rented a small room above a family's garage. It was literally just a room with a bathroom and a microwave and a mini fridge and a bed. And that was my home. And I would just, I basically just resided there when I wasn't at work because I worked for a company called Telvista, which is telemarketing basically. And I would go straight from work to home, home to work. I had no friends, no social life because I was absolutely terrified. And to paint a picture of how normalized violence is in in Mexico and in well in Tijuana particularly, I till this day I I feel like I understand why it's normalized and why people just went about their day, but I could never I couldn't do it. I couldn't just make that as a normal everyday thing. And so my anxiety was always through the roof. I was so stressed out every day that I got on a, it's called a Calafia. It's like a, like a mini bus, not like the main city buses, but it's like almost like a side bus. I don't know. (laughs) They're like bootleg buses. But every time I got into one of those, I was always scared. I was like, this this is, is someone going to get in? Is someone going to rob us? Is somebody going to, are we going to crack? Like literally every possible horrible scenario will come to my head. And when you are listening to me, I sound crazy because you're like, well, why were you so damn stressed out? Well, aside from the fact that, like I said, the drug cartels were out of control to the point that we had to implement martial law, they were killing everybody out in the open and public during the daytime. And I could never really explain to my husband because I almost feel like morbid when I'm talking and I'm talking about it like it's super normal and I I feel almost like a freak (laughs) because, you know, other people that don't experience things like that, they don't understand. But it wasn't it was normal, but I was still scared of it. I would be on the bus sometimes and I would tell my husband that when I was on my way to work, 
you would see sometimes bodies hanging from the bridge that the cartel would kill, either police officers or people who were drug dealers, people who were snitching, people who had betrayed whoever. So they would hang them off the bridge, the bodies, to show everybody what would happen if people would work with the police or law enforcement or the military, whoever was in charge of trying bringing the cartels under control. And, and they would do that as a show to the people as well to basically tell them to mind their own business or they would end up hanging off a bridge as well. And it's super scary because you don't know who that person is. And people would just drive by. And the bodies would be hanging up for hours because nobody had the nerve to go up there and cut the bodies down because then they would probably be killed as well. And so you had to wait for law enforcement or the military to come and cut the bodies down, but they couldn't keep up. And that's how bad it was. And I, I told my husband that was something that I would see on my morning commute to work. And I wanted to make sure that I always got home before dark. Because if people don't care about bodies hanging off a bridge, I, I could have probably disappeared because nobody would know I was gone. There was nobody waiting for me at home. There was nobody that I had to check in with. It would be weeks before anyone would even notice that like I was not there. And so why do I share this? Why? Because I want to really talk to you all about the level of violence that I experienced during that time of my life. And when I went to Juarez, when I was getting ready to go to Juarez, I couldn't imagine a place worse than Tijuana. I really couldn't. I was like, there's no way that this place is more dangerous. I mean, there's bodies hanging off of, off of bridges. There is people's headless bodies found in the garbage and nobody knows what happened to their heads. That's a real thing. And so to me, it's like, there's nothing worse than that. To me, it's, there's no place that is more dangerous than that. Well, I started to very quickly, once people found out where I was going, my family, the people I worked with started to, when I told them where I was going and that I had to go by myself, and I told them about Juarez, they all were like shocked and they were all so nervous and so scared for me going to Juarez by myself because I had to go there because immigration set my interview in Juarez for some god-awful reason across the Texas border rather than making it in California at the consulate there. And because I didn't really have a say in this kind of stuff and I had to make my appointment, I, I just had to go to Juarez. And that meant I had to go by myself into a place where I didn't know. And I quickly found out that women in Juarez were being killed at astronomically high rates, violently murdered. They were disappearing. They would go to work and they'd never come home. They were being found in the desert. Body parts were found in the desert of women. There were mass graves found, I think in 2016, of just women's bodies some of them, like I said, missing limbs with evidence of sexual assault or just pure violence. And I found out that not only was this happening, 
but nobody was doing anything about it. There wasn't any news coverage on this. It was just people who were heeding like caution to every single woman who was my age group um, to stay out of there, to not go out by yourself, to not trust anyone, to not get on public transportation, to not catch private transportation, to not be out after dark and all of these things. And suddenly I was the most vulnerable person ever. And I had to go to Juarez and I had to go do this thing. And I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. I I couldn't cancel it. And so I went to Juarez and I think, you know, someone was looking out for me because I got to the airport. I landed, I took a, I caught a flight from Tijuana to Juarez. And from there, I was really nervous in catching a cab because that was one of the places where they traffic you from is from the airport. And they talked about Mark cabs and how you have to be careful and so there was this I was looking for someone who looked kind I don't know how else I had no other criteria but I said well I'm gonna pick the kindest person (laughs) the kindest looking person and that's so silly now but I was I was 20 years old I would like to think that I was smarter, but like that was my criteria because I didn't know what else to do. It's not like I could go up to them and be like, are you going to kill me? And they're going to tell me the truth. (laughs) So I picked this cab and it was a man and I picked him because he actually had a picture of his daughters on the dashboard of his cab. And I thought to myself, well, he, he must be kind. And if he's not kind, he at least has daughters and who would want to hurt their daughters and who would want anything bad to happen to their daughters? Nobody, no, nobody. Like it's, I would feel like that is a less likely scenario than someone with no kids, no daughters who would want to bring violence to women. And like I said, that doesn't make sense, but logically that was how I made this conclusion and I picked this man. Well, I'm so glad that I did. Because he was the kindest person, one of the kindest people I have ever encountered in my entire life. He was shocked that I was traveling by myself. And then he asked me where I was going. And I told him I had to go to a hotel. And he said, okay, I'll take you there. And I was really nervous. And he could tell that I was really nervous when he was driving me there. And he asked me why I was there. And I told him that I had an interview with the American consulate for a for a visa and he he asked me how I was getting there in the morning and then he asked me if I knew what the process was like and it made me a little nervous that he was asking me so many questions but then I realized that as he was asking me questions and I didn't know answers to he was giving me information so he asked me if I knew where it was I said no I've never been here and he said okay he's like well from your hotel to that place, it should only be about a 15-minute cab ride. You should definitely take a cab. Don't take public transportation because you might be late. Um, and he's like, and I'm telling you, it should only take about 15 minutes. If someone t- is taking like 20, 25 minutes, they're taking you to the wrong place. And you need to get out. And you need to get to a safe place. And immediately my heart just started beating because I realized that what he was doing is he was warning me 
and he was looking for information about where I was traveling to so that he could tell me what to look for. And I started paying really close attention. And he saw that I was just shaking. I was so nervous because it was so dangerous. Honestly, it was so dangerous to just be there. And when he realized how terrified I was, he was like, he's like, you know, I, I'm not working tomorrow, but I can come and I can pick you up. And at first I was like, this guy's just trying to make a buck, but you know what? It's okay. Like if he wants to make a buck that I'm fine with it because at least it's someone that I know, right? Like I've met him once. He, he can take me and I kind of trust him. He seems to be kind. He talked about his family and his daughters. And so I agreed. He dropped me off at my hotel And then the next morning when I came out downstairs ready to call him, he was already waiting for me. And so I got in his cab and he took me to the consulate. He told me where to go, where the entrance was, because obviously he's from there. That's a lot of people travel to Juarez just for this specific reason alone. And he um, told me that he would wait for me, that it was probably going to take about four to five hours. Well, I got there at eight. So that would have put me probably around 1 or 2 p.m. And unfortunately, it was a 12-hour event. <laughs> around 8 p.m., I finally went through my interview. From 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., I was at the consulate. And it's like they work really late hours because... I was there and I didn't get through the interview process until about 10 o'clock at night. And when I came out, it was probably my worst nightmare, right? I came out and I thought, oh my God, what do I do? Like, who do I call? I don't even know where there was a payphone. All I have is my purse. (laughs) I'm going to get robbed. And he, uh, he was right there. He honked and he was right there waiting for me. He was like, hey, he's like, he flagged me down. He's like, I was hoping that you hadn't come out. I left for a couple hours and I came back and I was hoping that you were still in there. And I was just so thankful. And I told him that I needed to cross the border because I needed to cross the border that day and get my passport stamped as a legal entry into the United States. And then I needed to cross the border back to Mexico. And I had to walk across the Mexican American border by the footbridge. And then he was giving me directions on when I come back. He's like, and when you come back, there's going to be a lot of men there, like in cars. Some of them are taxis. Some of them are not. Do not get in any of them. He said, don't get in any of them, no matter how much they ask you. I'm going to try to find, because you can't like if you're not a part of that company, that like you can't stop there. He's like, I'm just going to keep looping around until I see you. So don't get in anyone's car. It's not safe. It's really late. Just wait for me. And so I did. This man waited for me to cross the border into the United States. And then I had to walk back across the footbridge. Talk about a freaking dangling, like, fucking prize, right? I've been waiting two years to go home and... I have to go across to the U.S. and I'm on American soil for 10 seconds. And then I'm like, well, fuck, now I got to cross back. That was really painful, by the way. I crossed back. This man found me once I crossed the footbridge. Again, he found me. And I got into his vehicle and he took me back to my hotel. The next morning, he picked me up. He took me back to the airport. And 
I can't tell you how incredibly blessed I was. And people think that's silly, like nothing happened. And I'm sure nothing would have happened. Um, But the fact of the matter is that that level of fear that I experienced, women experience that every single fucking day in places like Juarez, in American soil, (laughs) in your own neighborhoods. Women experience that level of fear every single day and people don't understand why and the reason is because of femicide okay women are murdered every single day by men so let's talk about why this is important well for me as you guys know my mother was a victim of domestic violence i was a victim of domestic violence for a portion of my life and i think very easily we could have ended up a statistic and we could have suffered a fate like femicide right we meet the criteria it would have been by our loved ones those who love us most are the ones who hurt us most And the sad part is that as undocumented women, because I was undocumented at the time, my mother is an undocumented woman, nobody would have cared what would have happened to us. We would have been just a statistic, Mexican, two Mexican women from a poor LA neighborhood, predominantly Latino neighborhood. We would have just been another number on the board of someone who just happened to love the wrong person really is what it comes down to and it's it's sad because these communities don't get the attention that they need or the resources or really just the acknowledgement that this is even happening because and I have to say this and people are not gonna like it but it is because of the color of our skin, or the community which we identify with, which is my case as a Latina, as an undocumented immigrant at the time, like I was nobody. I had no rights in this country. There wasn't anyone who I had more rights than. Any man could have easily taken advantage. And regardless of how perverse the shit they did would have been they would have still been in a better standing than I could ever be as an undocumented woman so why do I want to talk about it and why do I want to talk about other femicides that happen well I think that sometimes when our communities are in suffering right when like for me for example the Latino community when Latino women when Mexican women when Hispanic women, you want to call yourself. When we are in a state of suffering, we tend to focus on our suffering alone, right? We think that these issues of domestic violence, alcoholism, and the things that lead to femicide and seeing our women killed in our own country in high rates, we think that this is an us problem, And we fail to look outside of our community um, to see who else is experiencing this. And and we fail to come together to tackle this issue. A great example of that is the murdered and missing Indigenous women, the MMIW movement, women and children. This is Native American women and Alaska Natives who 
have been murdered and missing in the United States without any rhyme or reason. They've just disappeared, poof, out of the face of the planet. Or they've been murdered, violently murdered. Or they've been assaulted. Whatever it is, femicide has been committed against this community for decades. And it's so prevalent that the Native American community has formed this movement to bring attention to the issue. And it's sad because the Latino community, quite frankly, we don't know about that, right? We're so tunnel vision into the issues that we're trying to overcome, our own discrimination issues, our own racism issues, our own equality issues, our own femicide rates in our country, and that we fail to recognize our issues in other communities. And the Native American community suffers the same fate within this country, if we want to talk about it in that in that sense, because we, we kind of tend to remove ourselves from this issue and say, well, that's Mexico, full of narcos and drug cartels, like the Netflix show. <laughs> what do you expect? Well, yeah, but it happens here too, right? And the murder and missing indigenous women and children movement is proof of that. The fact that so many Native American women and children have been murdered or have gone missing without any type of police activity investigation, whatever the case might be, all of these unsolved crimes have gone on for so long within this country is a perfect example of how marginalized this community is. And it's not just them, right? We have our African-American sisters who are more, 30, 33% of them are more likely to die by femicide, right? By femicide when our male counterparts, so in the African-American community, you have women and you have men. And in the media, you're often seeing how you know, the men are being killed by being killed by homicide and all of this stuff, but all the headlines are geared towards men. And I'm not saying this to invalidate what is happening to our African-American community. I'm saying this to say as an example of how it's always focused on race or gender. So if a Native American woman goes missing or even a child, and that happens here. I live in the state of Washington where there's a lot of tribal communities here. Um, children have gone missing here, and you I see it on Facebook before I see an Amber Alert, okay? And on the other hand, if you have a child who is not from a marginalized community or a woman who is not from a marginalized community, they go missing and it's all over the media. It's all over the news. And it's a little sad because it, your socioeconomic status has a lot to do with it. The amount of attention it gets, the neighborhood that you come from, are you considered lower class, middle class? All of that stuff comes into play and the fact of the matter is that it shouldn't. But like I said, we're all experiencing the same issues. Femicide is a problem in every single community. So 
I guess the big mystery is why does, you know, Black Indigenous <clears throat> communities, why are we the ones that are experiencing femicide at a much higher rate? I don't have an answer to that. I think the ignorant people would say that it's because our communities are more prone to violence. And I would 100% say that is inaccurate, wrong. I think personally, just from my personal experiences growing up with my mother and her domestic violence experience with my father, it's because, because femicide very rarely just happens. It's usually someone you know, someone you're intimate with, someone you're in a relationship with. The things that lead to femicide are events, right? Domestic violence, verbal, whatever, harassment, sexual harassment, stalking, all of these things that happen, these behaviors, these events that happen when they're reported. It all comes down to who you are. And that is going to play a huge role in how credible you are and how serious your complaint or concern is going to be taken. Women of color, particularly women who live in lower, lower class neighborhoods or just where they're primarily Black or Indigenous people of color, I would say that our concerns and our issues are heard a lot less because we lose faith in the justice system. We lose faith in law enforcement and we get to a point where we stop reporting the abuse, the violence, the harassment, the assaults. And that's a sad thing, but that's the truth. And I think that when you find yourself in a community that's more credible, your complaints, your concerns, your issues are taken, even if it's slightly more serious than others, then you tend to have a little more trust in the system. And so when you have more trust in the system, then you tend to ask law enforcement to intervene sooner. And perhaps these crimes don't reach the level of femicide as often because, you know, you had help. <laughs> I don't know. Why do I feel this way? I would say I'll use my mom as an example. When I was, I think about 12 years old, we were living in LA. My mom was coming home from work. My mom didn't get home from work late. It was probably 6 30, 7 o'clock every evening. That evening, she actually came home and then she decided to go to the corner store. It was a block away. She decided to go to the corner store to get something. I think it was milk. I think we were out of milk. And she just went and she actually took my brother with her. So if I was 12, he must have been about 10 or 11, something like that. He's still a little kid. And she took him with her and I stayed at home and to take care of my little brother who was probably around four years old at the time we lived in a apartment complex it was not a nice neighborhood but it wasn't like the worst neighborhood we've lived in it was an okay place and we lived there particularly because there was a front door to the building that you needed a key to get into 
And for those of you who lived in rough neighborhoods, you know that front doors with bars and keys, like (laughs) they just make you feel safer. So we lived in this place. My mom was walking home with a gallon of milk in her hand and my brother was holding her hand and she was attacked by two men. And I'll say they were African-American men. And it's important because it played a role in how the police handled her case. They grabbed her from behind. They pushed my brother to the ground and they wanted to take her purse. Honestly, my mom should have let go of her purse. But when you have nothing, that's all you have. Your whole life is in there. And she has three kids to feed as a single woman. And so in that time, my dad was in jail. And so she literally was our only income. And so these men, in an attempt to get her purse, they started beating her because she wouldn't let go. And my brother was just screaming for anyone, anyone to come help. Now, in a neighborhood where people will tell your mom that they saw you kissing your boyfriend (laughs) because they're always being nosy and looking out their windows, That night, nobody heard, you know, quote unquote, nobody heard anything. Nobody said anything. Nobody came out to help my mother. Nobody came when she was screaming at the top of her lungs as they beat the living daylights out of her. She ended up um, practically unconscious. My brother managed to bang on the glass until one of the neighbors that lived closer to the door peeked out of their apartment. And he saw my little brother crying, so he came out, and the man saw what had happened, and he helped my mom stand up, who she was practically almost unconscious at that time. She was bleeding from her knees, her elbows, her face, and my brother was just screaming frantically. And he ran upstairs. He came to grab me. I grabbed my little brother, and I went downstairs to meet my mom. By then, someone had called the police. I'm not sure who, but I remember that instead of feeling relieved, I was completely panicked and terrified because we were undocumented and I didn't want to be deported. I didn't want my mom to be deported. It didn't matter that she was a victim of a violent crime. I just did not want to talk to them. I didn't have anything to say to them, but still, I just, I wanted to just kind of be invisible in that moment instead of feeling like someone had come to help us. So my mom started talking to them and we live in a predominantly Latino neighborhood. And I mean predominantly, I mean like 99% Latino. Okay. So when my mom started telling the cops what happened and when they asked her for a description of the men and my mom said African-American, they both just looked at her to just kind of gauge her. Usually police officers work in their same neighborhood, like, right, they know the neighborhood. And they know what the makeup of the neighborhood is. When I tell you that there was one white person in my entire high school of, like, 2,500 students, I am not exaggerating. There was one white person in the entire four years that I attended, and probably about five African-Americans. That is how predominantly Latino our neighborhood was, okay? And there was never any tension 
because you know when you're when you grow up poor you're all poor it doesn't matter if you're black white or brown everybody's equally poor you're the same poor like you you're no better or worse off than i am at least stomachly. So when my mom told the cops that the men were African-American, they immediately started to question everything because they said that this is not an African-American neighborhood and that two African-American men would stand out. And while they're right about if there was an African-American man or a white man or an Asian man in that neighborhood, they would stand out 100% correct. They would. The fact of the matter is that it's nighttime these men obviously came to this neighborhood to target someone. A mother and her child seemed to be easy targets. And honestly, when someone in the neighborhood like that gets robbed, it's usually a desperate move. It's usually someone who's looking for money for drugs, looking to get their fix. These things don't really just happen in lower income neighborhoods like People like to make you think they would. People aren't just going around mugging everybody. No, it's usually crackheads who just need their next fix. And because of that, their crimes tend to get violent because nothing is more important than that. So anyway, so my mom's case, nobody took it seriously. When we called a couple of days later, we called the station to see if the men had been caught the police officer never filed the report and never filed it so nobody was actually working this this issue my mom ended up with two broken ribs a broken eye socket bruises all over her body and she was bedridden for i would say about two weeks now when your mother is your only source of income and the means to putting a roof over your head you you think of the worst possible scenarios. I thought that we were going to end up on the street again. I didn't know what was going to happen to us. I was way too stressed out for an 11, 12-year-old girl. And it was infuriating to know that someone could do this to my mother and there was nobody there to help us. And it wasn't the first time, right? I witnessed my mom suffer domestic violence at the hands of my father for years. They would get there. They would see my mom beaten and bloodied on the floor and they would just leave (laughs) it's not a i don't think anybody would have batted an eye when when he killed her and they would have just said well she should have left but not realizing that you can't just leave but yeah this happened to my mom thankfully her assault i would say thankfully if there's a bright side is that it was not sexual in nature it could have been and I don't think that we could have recovered from something like that, but it could have been much worse. And to think of the fear and the chaos that ensued after this happened to my mom and the struggle emotionally, economically, I would say that I can't imagine what the families of women who have been victims of femicide have to experience not only because of the crime that's been committed against their loved ones, but the fucking audacity for society to ignore such an issue and for law enforcement to gloss over it and for news coverage to just be non-existent. It's infuriating. And while this podcast is based on me and my life as a Mexican woman, I 
always by pointing out from the very beginning that we're all chingonas in our own right. We all live our own truth. We all have our own experiences. But there are some experiences, there's some experiences, good or bad, that are shared. And this is one of them. Violence against women is unfortunately one of the experiences and one of the things and issues that we all share. Whether you're black, white, brown, you are going to experience this if you're a woman. It's inevitable until someone does something about it. And I think the way to start that is to first become educated and understand that this issue is not just yours. It's not just an issue of your community. Yes, bring attention to murdered, missing Indigenous women and children movement. Also, acknowledge that African-American women are getting killed at a higher rate in the United States than any other community. Also, acknowledge that women in other countries like Juarez, or if you want to really talk about politics and what's going on in the world, Iran, and all the women that are being murdered there. Femicide is a serious issue. And women are fucking badasses. If you let us take over the world, holy shit. I can't even tell you, but I genuinely believe that the world would be a better place. But fuck, we have to overcome all this. And yeah, I just really wanted to talk to you all about this today because I've talked about violence against women. But I think that just like I'm saying that we fail to look past our own issues, we have to make this, we have to stop making this, well, we have to make it personal, right? It has to matter to us. But we have to also realize that we need to help each other out. And it comes with awareness. (sighs) So that's it for this week's episode. Like I said, if any of this was just too triggering for you, I'm sorry. I just feel like without honesty and transparency, if you don't understand who I am, what I've experienced and where I come from, then you won't understand why I think and see things the way that I do. And it doesn't mean that I'm right. It doesn't mean anything. It just means that this is how I form my views and opinions. And I think by sharing our experiences and showing a little understanding that we can probably start to see issues from other people's perspective. And yeah, that's my mission. So I hope you enjoyed this. I hope that you learned something and maybe piqued your interest to looking into all of these issues a little more and learning more about them and how you can help. I'll post a couple of links to some articles. If you're interested in reading, I'll post them in the show notes. Until next time, adios.